Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for who you are, that you are the Holy One, that you are there to meet each of our needs, to help us with everything that we are facing. Lord, I pray in particular this morning that your Holy Spirit will take the words that are shared this morning and apply it to the hearts of each one that is here today. I know that each one that is here today has specific needs, and you are there, and you know, and you understand. And I pray that you would just take this message, your word, and apply it to each one, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted, that you would teach those who need to be taught, that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged today. And I pray that you would give me the, the words to say, that you would give me the strength to deliver this message today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last month, I preached a very difficult message entitled, Till Death Do Us Part, about lessons I learned through the death of my wife. Evidently, the lessons that I shared have ministered to many, many hurting people. I have received more comments from that message than any other message I've ever preached. And as people have come to me and they've talked to me, they've sent cards, letters, emails, uh, talked to me in person. It hasn't just been those that have lost a spouse, but it's been those who have gone through trials of various kinds. And the word of God that I shared a few weeks ago encouraged and helped, and they've shared that with me. I've been told that over 500 people have accessed the message on our website to listen to it. I've received information from people from eight different states, as God has just used that in a mighty way. Many men that are widowers have contacted me, and one in particular wanted to meet with me this past week and said, how are you dealing with it? And I shared some of those things, but one of the things I did right away, I said, you know what, I'm not dealing with it. God is the one that has helped me. And I asked him to share his testimony of when he was saved, and he said, I'm not sure what you mean. I was able to share the gospel with him this past week. He prayed to receive Christ as his personal Savior. And God is continuing to do great things like that. One of the things I said in my message four weeks ago is that Joyce's death is part of God's good plan, but I don't like it. And I can tell you four weeks later, I still don't like it. But God continues to give me scripture for each temptation, trial, question that comes to my mind. I continue to give thanks in everything. I continue to count it joy as I'm going through these trials. But I could ask the question, why do I still cry? And why do I still miss her? And God gave me this verse. It's found in Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. God reminded me I don't have to enjoy God's plan, but I have to endure it. And I endure it as I look forward to the joy that is set before me. God reminded me that we are to endure our crosses and we're to focus on our future joy. But how do we deal with our crosses? How do we do that? God tells us in, Rome, in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus. If we look at our own trials, we look at those things horizontally and they look so big. It's like somebody says, I can't see the forest because of the trees. But if we look unto Jesus and we see things from God's perspective, he sees it from a higher perspective. God's view is up there and he looks down and it's not as big as when we're down here looking out this way. And that's what God says, we have to look unto Jesus. And what I like too, it says, look under Jesus, who is the author 
and finisher of our faith. What does that mean? He's the one that planned it. He's the one that started it. And he's the one that's going to finish it. I like Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I tell new Christians the very first lesson, the very first lesson that I do when I follow up assurance of salvation, I share this verse. And they wonder, what does it mean, he who has begun a good work? I thought our salvation was complete. And I said, yes, at the moment of salvation, you are saved from the penalty of sin, and you never have to worry about going to hell. You know for certain you're in God's family and you're going to go to heaven. However, we're still on this earth. And we still face all of the trials and all of the sin that is here. But God is here to save us from the power of sin. I don't like sin. I don't like it. I don't like the the trials and the temptations that we face. I don't like it when people get upset with me or they get upset with someone else that I love and they, they attack them in problems. I don't like that. And I wish that we didn't have to face it, but God gives us the strength and the power to overcome the trials and the sins that we face while we're here. But we have to endure it. It's not fun. God saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin right now. And here's what I'm looking forward to. When we see the Lord, either through death or the rapture, he's going to save us from the very presence of sin. Won't that be wonderful? Won't that be great? When we're in heaven, there is no sin. There won't be any conflict. There won't be any pain. There won't be any sorrow. And I used to think when it says there's no pain, I was thinking it's referring to physical pain. I think it's dealing more with emotional and spiritual pain. That's what hurts us the most. You've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. We are hurt more by words than anything else. And when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any of that kind of pain. All the relationships are going to be healed. Won't that be a wonderful day? So he says, look up and look to the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So we look up, but we also see trials are to be endured, not enjoyed. Jesus endured the cross. Nowhere in scripture will you see that Jesus enjoyed the cross. It says he endured it. And I am to endure Joyce's death. I am to endure being a widower and all that that involves. And God explains and describes what this endurance is like. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I know that's a homiletical no-no to read that much Scripture, but I want you to really engage with the Scripture and understand this endurance race that he's talking about. It says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, people are watching us, to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people then you won't become weary and give up yourselves. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle for sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children when he said, my child, don't make light of God's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. 
as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you're illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening, but it's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Work at living at peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, We will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain, referring to the creation of the new earth. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. What he tells us in that chapter is how we endure the trials on this earth. It goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says we're to endure as a soldier. That would have to be hard. I don't think any soldier enjoys being in battle. But he endures it. C.S. Lewis is a theologian who served in World War I. He was no stranger to the stresses of military service. In a public address during the Second World War, he eloquently described the hardships a soldier has to face. All that we fear from all the kinds of adversity is collected together in the life of the soldier in active duty. Like sickness, he sees pain and death. Like poverty, he sees poor lodging, cold, heat, thirst, and hunger. 
Like slavery, it threatens toil, humiliation, injustice, and arbitrary rule. Like exile, it separates you from all you love. The Apostle Paul used the analogy of a soldier enduring hardship to describe the trials a believer may experience in service to Christ. Paul now is at the end of his life. He had faithfully endured suffering for the sake of the gospel. He encourages Timothy to do the same. He says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This world is not our home. This world is not a vacation place. We are in a battle. We are called soldiers. There's an enemy that's the devil. We're to take on our armor. And he says, we go through this life, we are to endure hardness as a soldier. Serving Christ requires perseverance. We may encounter all kinds of obstacles of poor health, troubled relationships, or difficult circumstances. But as a good soldier, we press on. With God's strength, we serve because he is the God of all gods. He is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. It goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, not only do we endure hardness as a soldier, but we endure as an athlete. We have to compete against the rules and we have to excel and continue to get better. And athletes have to just keep working harder and harder and harder to do better. It's not an easy thing for an athlete. It also says in 2 Timothy 2, 6, we're to endure as a farmer. We don't have as many farmers now, but back then they did. But you could look at whatever your job is. You know that there are hard things in your job. If you're going to be successful in your job, you have to work hard. And there's things you have to endure that you don't enjoy. But he says, endure as a farmer. Verse 10, he says, endure all things as a soldier. And in verse 12, he says, endure all things without complaining and we will reign with him. Endurance is what he's talking about. So he says, look above at the trials, endure the trials, but then look beyond the trials to the joy. We have to endure with the end in view. That's what God is saying. Don't look at your present circumstances, but look at life and endure with the end in view. Hebrews 12 says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That joy refers to the salvation that he was going to provide for you and me. That's what he saw. The pain was only for a while, but he knew that there was a purpose behind that. And without him enduring the cross, none of us could be saved. I thought it's like the mother who endures labor pains for the joy of seeing her new baby. She goes through that knowing the joy. But when that new baby is born, you don't ask the mother, would you like another child? You've got to wait a little while. There's a lot of pain that's involved. But they do that and they see the joy. And that's what God says. He doesn't expect us to enjoy the pain, but he expects us to endure the pain to enjoy what it's going to produce. That's what helps us during this life. Why do mothers have to endure labor pain? It's because of Adam and Eve's sin and the curse. Why did Jesus have to endure the cross? It's because of sin's curse. Why do I have to endure Joyce's death? It's because of sin's curse. Why do you and I have to endure trials? It's because of sin's curse. But we have to see that this is temporary. And God says, endure it and endure it well for the joy that is set before you. And for what that pain produces, and we look forward to that time when we are going to be in heaven where there's no even presence of sin. But we also see in 1 Peter 4.13, it says that we also not only endure and share with God's pain, but also with his joy. 
It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised when trials face your life, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. Verse 13 says that we share in his sufferings. The King James Version calls it the fellowship, working together. The Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens. And God is there to carry us along. And we share with that. He shares with us. We're not alone as we go through these trials. One of the emotions I had after Joyce died was that I wanted to leave this world and be with her. I didn't care anymore about things on this earth. Money, cars, houses, nothing. And I came to realize better that the joy of heaven will not be the streets of gold. As a kid, that's what I look forward to. Streets of gold, a wonderful place, no work, just going to be a wonderful place. And I realize it's not about that. It's relationships. It's being united with friends and with God. That's what's going to be the joy of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, 4, we read that Paul was transported to third heaven during a special revelation. What did he say when he got back? When Paul got back, he said, wow, I want to tell you what heaven looked like. It was so wonderful, the streets of gold, and the mansion is so great. Is that what he said? No, here's what he said. Philippians 1, 23. I want to leave this earth and be with Christ, which is far better than staying alive on earth. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he said he'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He didn't say anything about the amenities of heaven. He was talking about who was in heaven, and it was God. The joy of heaven is about being with God. Since Joyce's death, I have realized that I didn't have that same desire to leave this world and be with God that I did to leave this world and be with Joyce. Evidently, I don't love God as much as I love my wife. But I should. And that's what God says. It's about relationship with God. As I've been enduring the separation from Joyce, it's helped me to understand God's separation from his son when Jesus left heaven and came to this earth. Can you imagine how hard it was for God to say goodbye to his son? It was hard for me to say goodbye to Joyce And I knew she was in heaven. And I knew she would be happy in heaven. It was still hard to say goodbye. Imagine how hard it was for God to say goodbye to his son, knowing that he come down to this earth and live a humble life, but suffer and be tortured and ridiculed and put to death. That had to be hard. But God suffered as much or more than Jesus did, and he endured those things for future joy. He did that so that we could focus on the joy set before us. Well, we see in that verse in Hebrews 12 too, we are to endure our crosses, but we see focus on future joy. That's what we need to do, and I want to take a few minutes and focus on heaven. That's a wonderful thing to focus on. People always often ask, what will heaven be like? And they ask questions, you know, like, will my dog be in heaven? They will ask, uh, well, about the streets of gold, what will we eat in heaven? Will we know each other? What is there to do? How old will I be? What will I look like when I get to heaven? All kinds of questions come up. 
The Bible doesn't give us specific answers to most of those questions, but it gives us enough of information that we need to know. One of the misconceptions I think that people have is that Christians are going to live in heaven forever. Wherever that is, we're going to live up in there for heaven, but I want you to realize heaven is going to be here on earth. God is going to destroy the, the old earth and the old heaven. He's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and the new Jerusalem is going to come out of the heaven. It's going to be down here, and this earth is where we're going to live forever. We're not going to be somewhere way out in the sky. He's going to come down and make this earth a beautiful place, an amazing city. We see that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You see, when God made earth, he made it for man to dwell here, and he made it perfect. Think of the Garden of Eden and what it was like. It's always been God's will for us to be down here, but Adam and Eve sinned, and they destroyed that. We see here the 700 years before Jesus' first coming, God said through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The last two chapters of the book of the Bible... Revelation 22 described the new heaven and the new earth and the city of God. The new Jerusalem, that gigantic and spectacular city that's going to come down out of heaven, down to this earth. It is 1,400 miles cubed. If you could imagine how big that is, it'd be from the Mississippi River all the way to the east coast. And from Canada down to the southernmost boundary, that would be the square footage, the size of this new Jerusalem. And then it'd be 1,400 miles straight up in the air. Huge city. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's the joy we're looking forward to. This life is temporary. We have to endure the pain that is here and the suffering and the trials. But God says there is going to be that joy. Because God came down here to the Garden of Eden. Remember, he he created that, and he created Adam and Eve, and he wanted to live and dwell with them forever, and they sinned, and that separated them from God. Big problem now. They didn't deserve heaven. They were cast out of heaven, the Garden of Eden. But God solved that problem in the person of Jesus Christ when he sent Jesus to come down here and die on the cross for our sins. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, he made that promise to Adam and Eve that he would send that Redeemer, and I'm glad he has done that. And he wants them to restore this old earth, this sinful earth, and he wants to restore it so it's a place where we can live with him forever. Chapter 22 describes that. And as as we read through verses 1 through 5, we see here in chapter 22, it talks about the blessings of the new world. I want want to show you just five of those blessings as I read through these verses. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. This is after the new Jerusalem comes down. And of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
There's some themes I want you to see here in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. And then we see in the New Jerusalem, in the New Earth, as we see in Revelation 22. Notice this. In the Garden of Eden, there was a river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. In the New Jerusalem, there's going to be a river that flows out of the throne of God. In, in the Garden of Eden, a tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And then we see in the New Earth, the tree of life will be in the middle of the holy city. Then we see in the Garden of Eden, a curse was placed on the earth because of sin. The New Earth, the curse will be removed from the New Earth because of redemption. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, but forfeited it when they sinned. But then we know in the new earth, God's people will be restored to their position of dominion over the new earth. In the Garden of Eden, God came to the garden to fellowship with Adam and Eve every day. In the new earth, God will live in fellowship with his people in the holy city forever. The Bible is describing real, literal, future events and circumstances. It uses a deal of symbolic language to do so, but it helps us to understand what God is going to be doing. As we look at those blessings, we see, first of all, it said the river of life will flow from God's throne. Notice it says throne singular, and yet it talks about God the Father and God the Son. It talks about their unity. They are one. There is one throne, and they are there together. The river of life that flows out from the throne. Isn't that wonderful when it talks about that river of life? And it gives healing and and strength to people there. It reminds me in uh, John chapter 4 when Jesus said, Drink of this living water and you will never thirst again. It's referring to the salvation that he's provided for us. The tree of life that we see in the Garden of Eden, and it's not mentioned again until Revelation chapter 2. And here, that tree of life has the fruit. And we're not sure if it has 12 different kinds of fruit on one tree or every month there's a different fruit there. But it's there to talk to us about the healing that we have and the sustenance that we have in God. We see that the curse of the sin will be gone forever. Oh, that's such a wonderful thing. We're so used to that now. We can't even imagine what it would be like. Well, we look forward to that time. We talk about the curse of this world. We know all of the famines and And everything that takes place. I remember reading an article back in 2010. It says the world gone wild. It says the year the earth struck back. It said earthquakes, heat heat waves, floods, volcanoes, super typhoons, blizzards, landslides, and droughts killed at least a quarter of a million people in 2010. The deadliest year in more than a generation. More people were killed worldwide by natural disasters that year than were killed in terrorism attacks in the past 40 years. And it's continuing to go on. And one of these days, this world is going to be healed. We saw that human dominion over the earth will be restored. That will be such a wonderful time. We also saw in verse 5 that God will live among his people. We will see his face, and it says that his name will be on our forehead. You know, it must have been a wonderful thing for his disciples to have lived with him those years, and we will be able to live with him for eternity. It's fellowship with God that's important. It's not the amenities of heaven. Now we come to verse 6 at the end of this chapter. And after 66 books, 1,077 chapters, we come to the final paragraphs of God's written revelation for mankind. The final things that he wants to communicate to us. So far we've looked at the blessings of the new world. I want us to look at two final themes, the importance of the revelation and the response to the revelation. First of all, we see here the importance of the revelation. It's, It's not primarily prophecy that's important it's the revealing of who god is sometimes we look at revelation we get so excited about here are the next prophetic events that are taking place don't get so focused on those details that you forget 
why those details are there. It's to usher in Jesus Christ. It's like coming to a wedding. It's not so important all the details of the wedding. It's actually the ceremony itself that's important. It's the bride and groom that are the focus. And that's what he says. We need to look at the focus of Jesus. And the importance of the revelation, first of all, it says the message is trustworthy in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. God never lies. His word is true. It works. Even as you get to the end of the Bible, it's there. Everything is true. Also, its message is urgent in verse 7. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He says he's coming back quickly. How are we to understand that word quickly? People around us say it's been thousands of years since he said that and he's not back, so it must not be true. You have to understand the word quickly doesn't mean soon. The word quickly means it could happen at any time. And when it happens, you're not going to have any opportunity. It's going to be the twinkling of an eye, the blink of an eye, and it's going to take place. The word means suddenly, without further warning. It's imminent. It can happen at any time. It's going to be sudden. I thought the rapture is going to be like the shooting of a gun. When I would go hunting, I'd have the gun, and my finger would be close to the safety so that if I would see a rabbit, I could hit the safety and pull the trigger. As I'd be walking in in a brush where I thought a rabbit could be, I was more alert and ready for that. But sometimes I could go the whole day and never see a rabbit and never shoot, and nothing happened. It's like, like the rapture. It's like God has the gun, and his finger is close to the safety and close, close to the trigger. And it, it could happen at any time. But even when I was hunting, if a rabbit would jump up, I'd pull that trigger, and boom, the shotgun blast would go, and in the twinkling of an eye, it was done. It's the same way. The Lord is ready. It's imminent. There's no prophecy. It has to be fulfilled. The Lord could come back at any time. It could be today. It could be 500 years from now. But when God pulls the trigger and when it's time, it's going to be sudden like the shooting of a bullet and you don't have any time to prepare. That's what he's saying. So don't doubt God's word. He is coming back not soon, but it's imminent. And when it comes, it will be quickly. And as soon as that happens, it ushers in the tribulation of seven years, the millennium of a thousand years, and it's all marked out, and we know exactly what's happening. But not only is its message urgent, its message is transformational. We see in verse 8, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God. It changes our life. We worship God. We fall down to God. Its message is understandable. A lot of people say, oh, the book of Revelation is so hard to understand. No, it's understandable because in verse 10 it says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Get it out there. Help people to see it and understand it. Why do a lot of people think it's difficult and hard to understand? Because they don't know how to interpret it properly. In fact, you can look in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. It tells you how to interpret it. It says you look at the things that were, the things that are, and the things which will be. And basically, the book of uh, Revelation is divided into three parts. Chapter 1 is the past. Chapter 2 and 3 is where we are right now. Chapters 4 through 22 are the things that are yet to take place. If you go into a mall, especially me, that I don't go shopping much, I look for that big sign. And the sign, you look for the star, and it says, You are here. And then you figure out where to go from there. And that's what we see as we look at the book of Revelation. We look at chapters 2 and 3, and it says, You are here. 
And when you understand that, and you understand you start in chapter 4 and go on, those are the things to come. It will make it much more understandable. I do want to say something really exciting and encouraging here. September 20th, Pastor Scott is going to be beginning a preaching sermon series on prophecy. He's already lined out the eight chat or the eight topics he's going to do he's getting the mailer ready and those kind of things and you are going to want to come to that as he unfolds the book of revelation and prophecy we also see that god's message is defining verse 11 that on the surface it looks a little strange but follow along as i read it says let him who does wrong continue to do wrong that sounds strange doesn't it let him who is vile continue to be vile why would he say that let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Here's what he says. That if you don't turn to God now, when the tribulation comes, most people will not repent and turn to God. Some will. 144,000 will right away. Other people will turn to Christ. But the vast majority won't. When they see all of these events taking place, most people are going to curse God. Most people are going to blame God. Those who are walking in sin right now are probably going to continue on in sin. The Bible says that Satan will send a strong delusion that people will believe a lie. And so what he's saying is, if you're not turning to God now, when those things happen, it's probably not going to turn things around. We understand, too, that once somebody dies without the Lord, they are lost forever, and there is no second chance. Well, we see the importance of the revelation. We look at the response to the revelation. Verse 12 be prepared. Behold, I come quickly. When he comes, it's going to be so fast, you don't have a chance to do anything else. My reward is with me. Be prepared. Secondly, make certain of your salvation. It said, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Make sure of your salvation. Third, keep inviting others to receive Jesus, his salvation. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Isn't that wonderful? God offers the gift of everlasting life to everybody. He says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I will give you that living water that you never have to thirst of again. And we need to keep inviting other people to Christ. Keep telling them about this living water. They need to accept the Lord today. If you've never accepted the Lord as your Savior, you need to do that today. His salvation is free. Fourth, don't tamper with the message. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. It is as wrong to add to the scriptures as it is to take away from them. One of the greatest errors of churches and Christians is to add to what God has said, to make it more complicated than what God has said. We have to be careful. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Fifth, pray for Jesus to return and for God's grace to live as his people while we wait. Says he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And that's the end of the story. The story of the kingdom of God. How he wants to rule and reign in our lives. But really, it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning of the story. 
because God's plan is for his people to live happily ever after. And that's in heaven. He wrought redemption through Jesus Christ that he can offer that to us. And that's why in Hebrews 12, too, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And that's how I am enduring my wife's death. I look to Jesus, who endured all things for us, understanding that this is temporary here, and we look forward to the joy that is set before us. And I'm so thankful that it tells us in Philippians that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it and complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. We're just passing through. Endure as a soldier. Be faithful. You you don't have to enjoy it, but you endure it and be faithful, and God will produce the results in your life, and he will bless you, and you have that joy to look forward to. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I beg you to do it today before it's too late, because if you die in your sin, you're headed for hell. If you've never accepted Christ, your personal Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that you can do that. But you have to mean it in your heart. It's not just saying the words. Let's pray. If you want to receive Christ, your personal Savior, you can just repeat silently to yourself something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I get it now. I understand it. You don't get to heaven by being good. You get to heaven because Jesus died for us. And right now, Lord, I believe that I'm a sinner and I deserve hell. I want you to forgive me of all of my sins. Save me from the penalty of hell. Give me the gift of eternal life and make me a child of God. Lord, I pray that if anyone prayed that prayer, that they would get that assurance right now of their salvation. And Lord, for those here that already know Christ as personal Savior, help them right now to cast all their care upon you I know that a lot of people have heavy weights on their hearts. And I pray that you would help them to understand that we don't have to enjoy these things, but we have to endure them without complaining. We have to endure them understanding that this is your plan for us, understanding that this pain that we have is just because of sin, But we look forward to the day that you can give us that joy. We look forward to the day that we will be in heaven. Help each one to cast all of their care upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.